0: Welcome to the pilot episode, the sound check, um, where we get the EQ right, but probably wrong.
1: Very wrong. Uh,
0: very wrong. Welcome to Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. Um, <laughs> my name is Stephen Godfrey. My co host is Bill Connolly. Bill, as you know, runs Rock M Nation for SB Nation. He assembles every one of our college football previews. He is an innovative statistician, he is the author of Study Hall college football at stats and stories um he also writes soccer for our site and um i am the guy who knows the bagman and who took six years to get a journalism degree from a public school so i will be asking bill most of the questions um although i think you actually have a question for me to start this whole affair
1: yeah hey godfrey tell me a louisiana story
0: Uh, okay we're gonna start with louisiana um I don't know about you, but I think this is the single most frustrating. Um, well, not not the state of Louisiana. I don't like. I don't want to blame ULM or Tech or ULL for anything, but this is probably the third off season in a row where LSU has been the most annoying question I've received in the nine months of off season radio appearances. <laughs> um, which that'll probably come up a lot on the show is uh, maybe the the after hours track on what it's like to do radio and in sports talk and how. It can be really redundant and really repetitive, but um, are you still doing? Bill has a, a weekly segment on a, on a. Where is that radio? Where is it, Lafayette?
1: Uh, during the season, I, I haven't heard from him yet. I hope I get to do it again. You know, I I, I love doing rapid fire stuff on Lo, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana radio. Um, so that's the
0: one I would say the most celebrated team in, in the same division, the same conference, is Arkansas. I got the most positive Arkansas questions. I got the most incredulous talk-about-style questions about LSU. And I, I want to say this is the second or third year in a row. Now, some of those questions come directly from my in-laws. Uh, <laughs> my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, multiple cousins-in-law, I'm leaving multiple in-laws out. I uh, graduated from LSU. Um, I was recently on vacation, in which my father-in-law told me that um, he could definitely see an 11-2 and two scenario for a national title. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Before I get into maybe the more cultural side of that, explain to me how that's possible.
1: How 11-2 and or how a two-loss national champion is possible or how an LSU? We
0: we won't even get into something that's terrible. But no, paint me that picture because before I disparage my in-laws, which I I, I love them to to pieces, their LSU fandom is wonderful though. um, Explain to me a scenario in which uh, LSU is not only good, but surprisingly so. And apparently in an 11-2 and two world, effective at that whole quarterback thing.
1: Well, I mean, that's that's the answer is they're effective at quarterback. Um, you know, obviously <laughs> obviously, there's a chance. I mean, it was funny writing the LSU preview because I'm like, you know, the Lions got to be good. They got just absurdly explosive receivers and uh, their defense should be really fast. Now we just don't know if they have a quarterback or a defensive coordinator. But other than that, you know, they pretty much they're set. Um, it made it really, really hard for them to, for me to figure out where to put them when I did that, you know, big, when I just uh, decided to torture myself by making a one to one twenty eight list the other day. Uh, I mean, I mentioned it in the piece. I could see any result for LSU this year, but yeah, I mean, if their quarterback's good and, and despite what we saw last year, uh, the highly touted guys, Brandon Harris, um, you know, w- his full season stats looked great because of the first couple of games and they were terrible after the first couple of games, but if he has some sort of jump from his freshman to sophomore year and, um, you know, if the new coordinator can, can not be terrible, which, you know, last time we saw him, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, he, Kevin Steele was pretty terrible. Uh, but, that, that, you know, that's not his whole career. So, yeah, it, it, if those two things work out right, they could be as good as anybody in the country. It's just good luck trying to figure out how to convince yourself to bet on that.
0: So I'm sitting in Waco, Texas three weeks ago. And I'm interviewing a booster for Baylor for a story about Baylor and TCU that's gonna hit, I think, next week at Despedation. Guy leans in, he's he's so he's owned this famous restaurant, George's in Waco, for I think like twenty-five years or something like that. Leans in, starts talking about Kevin Steele very seriously, <laughs> and looks at me, and I thought he was going to give me some sort of personal detail about the man that I didn't want, some sort of weird sexual proclivity. He looks at me in all seriousness and says man's a vegetarian, <laughs> With just this deathly pause after it. And I think, you know, if, that, if it's that big a deal to, to a restaurant owner in Waco, which I get it because he would, like, provide the food for the coaches and team. I mean, are we ready to live in a world where <laughs> the LSU defensive coordinator is a vegetarian? Like, he can't eat anything in Louisiana.
1: Darn, yeah. You can't eat anything. Yeah, the first my first trip to Louisiana was Shreveport in 03 for the big Missouri-Arkansas Independence Bowl. By the um, way,
0: there's a whole host of people listening to this, thousands already, I'm sure. And anyone clear. from Louisiana screaming at you, that's not Louisiana.
1: See, I was going to say, it's pretty Louisiana, except it's not wet. There's no, well, I mean, there is water separating, you know, Shre- Shreveport from Big Bozier City, but it's not Gulf of Mexico wet. Um, so, yeah, I, but it, it felt pretty Louisiana when we had never really experienced Louisiana before. And uh, the night before the game, um, my wife and I were looking for a ho- new hotel room because our room at the best value in and suites was mold infested. Um, so we missed this, but they went to, you know, a Mudbugs bugs, uh, minor league hockey game. Um, they're all wearing, you know, Mizzou stuff and, and a guy wearing an LSU jacket just kind of like looks at them for a while and then comes over and starts talking to them, making them all real nervous. He basically said, Hey, you guys should come to our tailgate tomorrow, uh, before the game. Uh, you know you'll be our but you know our personal guests, and they said you're tailgating before a Missouri Arkansas game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got the Sugar Bowl coming up in a couple weeks. We get, we're just we don't want to get some practice in before the real thing. Um, which it's it's fun realizing just how much of an amateur you really are, just all all at once. Uh, but I, we went to that tailgate and I had eleven different kinds of meat. Like I can't I can't I remember it was eleven. I can't actually name it anymore. But there was gator in there. There was beef pork. Beef, pork, chicken, shrimp, other fish, other, you know, mammals. I don't know. Like there, there was 11 different kinds of meat. Um, and, I, you know, I guess I would have starved had I been a vegetarian. Let
0: me day. back you up to the very beginning of that story. That wasn't mold in your room. Okay. That was walrus. <laughs> that was a gift left by the locals.
1: All I can tell you for sure is we walked in and my wife broke out in hives like instantaneously. Walked in the room, said, no, no, can't, no, can't do this. And we That's just
0: Shreveport shaking hands. That's all that is. That's a Shreveport handshake. That's what that's called.
1: Well, it didn't agree with my wife. is a Shreveport handshake. A lot of things don't agree with my wife. That one definitely didn't agree with my wife. Uh, We ended up at, I think, a residence inn, somewhere that was way too nice for everybody else traveling, Uh, more than, you know, we really wanted to spend, but, you know, we wanted her to be able to breathe, so that's what you, you got to do what you got to do. But, Um. so Kevin Steele.
0: So Kevin, so so the seriousness in which he discusses Kevin's uh, Kevin Steele's uh, vegetarian. I don't think he's vegan. I think he's actually vegetarian. Um, I think maybe belies the point that um, this is not a value for value replacement. I, I never have really. I've never been someone who thought John Chavis was an elite defensive coordinator. At least, maybe I guess his it, the earlier years that he was in Baton Rouge. I know at the height of the Fulmer era, he was you know it was a different kind of offensive sec that that the mustang package worked against i think time has sort of stolen a few things from him as the game has changed that being said he's a better more accomplished you know more consistent defensive coordinator than Steele. and this is not a team that has that like old standby nick Saban era defensive line to rely on so i mean we're not picking on lsu to start the show for any one particular reason but um It's just the question I – I get asked a lot of questions because I do a lot of radio and I really shouldn't because I'm not someone who's as versed and accomplished and knowledgeable as you are in terms of the whole sport. I just sort of pick something, investigate it, report it, go down a weird rabbit hole, come back two weeks later with 6,000 words. (laughs) But I just – you can BS your way through so many teams. The team I think that you need to know the least about and can talk the most proficiently about in college football, anybody is USC. Yeah. Especially when you do radio like East of the Mississippi um and we'll get to USC in a, in a second because I have a question for you about that but I just don't know what to say about LSU
1: I mean that for the reasons I said earlier it is kind of difficult because they really could have all the pieces and this is one of those things here they start off with this year um scrolling down to their schedule they start well they start off with McNeese State but then they have yeah. at Mississippi State and Auburn second and third week and um you know for most teams on the schedule they're just going to be able to bludgeon them they're going to be able to throw 18 different running backs at them uh run you know throw two play action bombs so you know Harris or whoever goes like 2 for 10 for 160 yards and two touchdowns and uh, the defense will force enough mistakes that that'll be just fine. But for LSU, we're not—we don't think of things in terms of just fine. It's basically, are they a national title contender or not? And they play, uh, you know, a lot of good teams on the road. Uh, Alabama, Ole mess late, but then they get, you know, like South Carolina is never not tricky, at least, and Mississippi State's right there at the beginning. And I. I don't know if you can do that with with a a new – he's going to be super aggressive. That's the thing about Chavis is in a lot of ways, Chavis was just kind of bend, don't break, except with super fast guys, so you couldn't tell. Um, Steele's going to attack. If his his track record is any indication, Steele's going to attack, and maybe that means they make a lot more mistakes, or maybe it just means that they tear everybody's head off. I don't know.
0: All right, to, to wrap this up, I will say this. I, I talk to a lot of assistant coaches, um, and I talk to a, a, a handful of group that um, are, for lack of a better term, gossips. I mean, I'm talking <laughs> old school church basement, so in circle, just biddies. Just biddies. I don't know if that's gender bias or not. Um, and they are, I'd say, you know, the guys I talk to, I say they hit about 60% of the time on, on things that they, and what I mean by that is things that they hear this time of year that end up happening around coach firing season towards Christmas. Um, and the one that I hear every year now and have heard for, I guess going, this is probably the fourth off season where I hear this emphatically and they know a guy who has heard this for sure. <laughs> is it, this is it for miles. He is probably amongst coaches. The seemingly most like tenuously positioned major head coach at a major program. Um, and, and of course inevitably he, he stays in Baton Rouge and, and they do just fine but I do think there is a, a growing resentment among certain people in Louisiana because the level of talent has not um, diminished at all I think what Saban proved way back when was that if you keep even like three-fourths or two-thirds of that talent in inside the state on a yearly basis you're not going to compete with any other program in your borders and you're going to have a formidable national title-level contender. It's that they're still landing somewhere about that clip. It's just they're not seeming to sort of develop it and gel it in the way they need. And also, they just... I mean, if, if Zach Mettenberger doesn't punch a girl in a bar <laughs> in central Georgia, then they're, they're sort of without a quarterback going all the way to, what, I guess, Jamarcus. Yeah. Is that fair to say? I mean, yeah, when you... it is kind of a a non-starter parallel could, the
1: fence, could have been the real deal, but we, I mean, yes, but we don't oh, know. I, I, yeah.
0: I definitely think he would have, but, um, but he, you know, he's a non-factor. So again, it's not that I just, I actually really like LSU. I've, um, I would probably say next to my alma mater or any team that I've covered. I've been to more games in Death Valley than anywhere else, and it's it's hands down the best single experience that you could have on a college campus with football involved. Um, it's just I'm so tired of not knowing what the hell is going on with this team, so I can only imagine how LSU feels. Well, so. like,
1: I, like I pointed out in the preview, um, they're they're an, on a presidential cycle here. Right before the Iowa caucuses, every four years, LSU wins a national title. So, um, you know, 03, 07, 11, this is the year. Uh, maybe they're stick- they're keeping less around just in case he he has more magic for uh, the fourth year of the cycle there. But this is the fourth year, so he might be in trouble if he doesn't. I guess. But I mean, I, LSU has always confused me because you know they've always had these kind of you know potential talent advantages. It's not like there's only recently been talent in in that area. But Mike Archer, you know, I'm I'm looking at their record here. You know, Bill Arnsparger did a good job, uh, at least in terms of winning nine games a year. Mike Archer comes in, wins 10, then 8, then 4, then 5. Curly Hallman never gets off the ground. Jared Inardo has a couple of good years and finishes, you know, 7-15. This is, going back to, what, the 50s almost, or early 60s, this has not been a consistently awesome program until Saban and Les. And Les is still engineering. Until last year, they had... What like ten uh, top twenty finishes in eleven years? So I mean, it's still really good. It's just he probably needs to make another big run at some point. And I did say twenty eleven. Obviously, they didn't win that year. They were the best team that year top, uh, from start to finish, but they obviously laid a big egg. So I should point. I should clarify that.
0: Last thing I'll say before we go before we leave LSU, just to really feed some conjecture here. Uh, this is not of any merit or any anything that one would confirm but when I talk idly with people in and around college game day I've got, I've got a piece coming up on uh, the transition from Chris Fowler to Reese Davis and uh, I talk with people in college football at large I say you know Lee Corso is gosh I don't even know how old he is he's um in his 70s I believe I think so um I'll have to look that up very quickly but um he's getting up there he had a stroke back in 2009 I know that and so he's I mean, he's he's not going to be a part of game day for an extended amount of time, and it's been talked about um, who would replace him. And to a man, every every answer I get when I when I ask like, "What coach would you plug in there?" It's Miles every yeah. time. Plus Miles, because you've already he's won a national title. He's not going to translate, nor do I really think. I, I've never heard anyone in the industry tell me that he has any aspiration for the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, hey. Stranger things have happened, but um, I, there there's no program that you go to that isn't a step down or an arguable lateral move. Because I believe that LSU's a top ten job, um, so I think he just he's got his ring right.
1: Yeah,
0: I think he'd be perfect.
1: Lee okay. Lee, Lee is eighty, by the way. Man, he just yeah. okay. he just turned so, eighty. So.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so I feel
0: like Southern Cal is the school that <laughs> most benefits from the off-season conjecture. Is that fair to say? You write a preview for every team. I, I pick up things idly in conversation, and I listen to a lot of sort of like preview podcasts, which I, I wouldn't I would classify this as. But just in general, I feel like when there is more than when there's like one and a half positive bullet points associated with any USC team. You find them sort of appearing more. I, what I, I guess what I'm saying to you, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Because okay. the purpose of this show is to is to vet common misconceptions in college football. It's also just for me to talk over you being a lot smarter. I feel like what we associate with Notre Dame in terms of the national biased East coast thing we actually get with USC amongst sports writers because we in, in the sports media feel like, Oh, well, that should be a no brainer, the talent, the history, et cetera, the market and all that. Is that fair to say? I
1: think, um, I think it depends on what we're talking about, because from a poll standpoint, um, it's kind of most of the time they're about right. And when they're wrong, they're really wrong. So like in 2012, they began the season, you know, preseason number one, they finished seven and six. In 09, they, pre- they were preseason number four. They finished nine and four. Uh, otherwise, they've actually been like in, in – in tr- I'm looking at the, the list here. 2014, they started 15th and the 20th. 2013, they started 24th and the 19th. And in 2011, they started 25th and ended 6th. So I, I think basically what it comes down to is you can find somebody writing a preview, usually me, uh, who will say that they have absolute top ten potential. Um, Actually, every preview probably says potential, and then we kind of just read it from there. Like, we, you know, people will say the same thing about Tennessee or any number of other teams, Notre Dame, um, and, and then it's just basically what we start to perceive. Uh, you know, we we kind of add to our own little personal narrative at that point. I think so. This year, I can't remember where I ranked them in the teens. I think in my little one to one twenty eight list, uh, they're going to start off around there. I think in the AP, um, I they're probably not going to end up in the teens. They're either going to end up top five or going about eight and five because the PAC 12 is really uh, a really tricky conference. And, you know, between having to go at Arizona state and at Oregon uh, at Notre Dame, UCLA at home, uh, Arizona and Stanford at home. There are a lot of teams there where if you're a top 10 caliber, you're going to go about 10 and two or 11 and one. If you're a top 25 caliber, you're going to end up going about seven and five. So, Their schedule kind of sets up a lot of volatility, and you know, knowing USC, they're gonna, it's gonna be one or the other. They either start low and finish really high, or start really high and finish low.
0: I remember watching the 2009 Washington team and thinking that as Lane Kiffin became this sort of like the second coming of of Carroll from that staff and that like unstoppable Ots era Trojan staff. Like I thought, oh okay. Sarkeesian's the real guy here. That's going to pay out. You know, just watching that first year at Washington. And Mm -hmm. I think the upset of USC was the following year. I could be wrong. Um, Then it was seven and six, seven and six, seven and six. And then he finishes eight and four. He's sort of the de facto choice. Like I've never had anyone successfully sell me on him being the best available
1: coach (laughs) for that job. Um, I have a, a glorious amount of personal history with one Ed Ogeron, and I would have even made an <laughs> argument at that time that
0: maybe he would have been a better pick. Um,
1: the thing about... I know I,
0: they went 9-4 and four last year, right? So that sort of argues against the plateau. And it also, it, it, again, a lazy argument, and I want you to dispel this, is, well... You know he he's automatic He comes out of the gate nine and four. They're still a little thin from from everything that they went through with Kiffin and the uh, the restriction on scholarship, the depth issues that they had. But that nine and four is already better than those seven, six, eight and four years at Washington because that's just the kind of level of talent that you have at USC. I just have yet in my sort of like fan at the tailgate argument is he has yet to show anybody that he's a top he's the coach of a top five
1: team. I think give him top five talent, and he could get there. But you know, I, I end up being basically, <laughs> I end up becoming a Sarkeesian defender because I don't think he's terrible. Uh, I've gotten into a lot of uh, you know Twitter arguments and whatnot, where it, it basically because I don't think he is just god awful. I, I you know I turn into like a, a Sarkeesian Homer or something, which is. Always kind of fun. I think the problem last year was, I mean, yeah, they were definitely thin still, and that defense um, regressed quite a bit from what Clancy Pendergast had the year before. Um, and Pendergast, by the way, must just be terrible to work with because otherwise, I have no idea why he didn't immediately find some other job. I think he's he's at least when it comes to coordinating a defense, he's very good. Last year, Wilcox had some issues trying to, you know, plug. Uh, you know pieces into his system but last year their biggest problem was the way they failed like when they looked good they looked spectacular you know they they destroyed Notre Dame you know Sports Illustrated preseason top five Notre Dame they beat them by 35 points you know they had no problem going to Washington State they had no problem they beat Arizona in uh, Arizona but you know after beating Stanford they went to Boston College which is a trip that nobody should ever agree to make uh, you know, cross country like that. That's just asking for a letdown. Uh, they got pushed around by a really good run offense and they lost. They did, they only lost by six, but we kind of treated that as a massive failure, LOL, at USC. Right. And Boston College ended up almost beating Florida State, too. So then um, their next loss was a hail the worst Hail Mary defense of all time against Arizona State. Um, They had a good team beaten until the last play of the game where they just completely forgot everything they were supposed to do, forgot all responsibilities and let a guy just catch the ball and walk into the end zone without actually touching anybody. That was absurd. Um, You know, losing at Utah, there's no real shame in that. But then they got thumped by UCLA. So basically, their 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 setbacks. It's not just that they lost four times; it's that they got pushed around by BC, got whooped by UCLA, and lost by a stupid pay no attention hail mary. And that's that will earn you some, especially when your reputation is already some sort of underachiever. Even though it took him two years right. to go from 0 and 12 to seven and six at Washington. Like that was a he did a dynamite coaching job those first couple of years. But
0: and just just to reiterate, no argument there. Yeah, like I said, was totally on the train back back oh nine, especially after even in that first five and seven year because we had seen. I mean, I think the is it the the last Willingham is oh and twelve is is the last Willingham season is but I mean one of the worst Division one college football or Power Five Division one college football teams that's ever been put on the field. Just an absolute travesty. Totally on board with him. I think if even if you just hit eight and four, nine and three, or if you win them, the, you know, they never really had that defining USC upset type of win two, three years down the road. I guess it's more a resentment of something that's a little more intangible, and in that you see this. I think you saw this with Florida State as Jimbo was taking over for Bobby, where you want to announce the return yeah. oh, of yeah. this brand name. Probably a year, two years too early. We're seeing it now. I thought. I I mean, honestly, I kind of thought we saw it with Miami when Golden got there as well. Where not to speak ill or positive of Al Golden, just again, it's another name that we in the industry are are fond. I guess not fond of, but just used to. There's this weird when you drill down. This has nothing to do in my mind with USC. I don't dislike them. I whatever. It's that I don't see the reason why we feel the need to hang our hat on the brand names.
1: Well, and I that's mean, as I'm a Is very, there some
0: sort of secret fear that if college football is made up of like Baylor and Boise and, <laughs> and Mississippi state that no one's going to watch because that's been proven wrong.
1: Well, I think it's basically when you became a college football fan, who are the good teams? That's I think where, you know, that's what your vision of college football is. And so, yeah, we absolutely rely on preconceptions. If you, if USC looks like USC once they're back, as a Missouri fan in the big twelve, we used to joke because every single year this is the year Colorado's back. this is the year Nebraska's Nebraska again every single year it didn't happen, and just but they would you know play well once, and so the next year it became okay, here's the season where they're back, and okay, we'll know what about now and it was just it becomes a race, it's the same way with Michigan and penn state um you know we as soon as they do anything, we're going to bump them about five to ten spots too high, and then at the same time you know. I think it's amazing. I think it's, even though I disagree with having TCU second in the country this year, I think it's awesome uh, that they're the ones who get the benefit of the doubt in this case, because it's not, well yeah it's not USC it's not I was worried that USC after that when they beat Nebraska last year people were freaking out because of how good Jackson was and um you know the good plays in that game were spectacular um and you started if you're paying attention on Twitter you start seeing you know okay well they're ready next year next year they're going to kill everybody and so I was thinking are we really going to make them a top five team after they barely ended up barely actually beating Nebraska but we didn't we 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 seem to have done a good job this year in terms of pumping the brakes on USC, pumping the brakes on Tennessee. I was worried they were going to end up a top 10 team to where, you know, they go nine and three and that's disappointing. So, um, you know, I think the pollsters as a whole did them. The coaches, at least. We'll see what the AP does. They did a better job this year than I actually anticipated them doing.
0: I would still say, and maybe it's just the like uh, um, brainwashing aerosol that smells like fried chicken that's pumped into my part of the country. It's still probably Arkansas. I think that it's we spent the year just listening to this. Oh no, yeah, ten and 2 tenant two. I mean, LSU stuff aside, I think Arkansas has probably benefited the most from really unhinged lack of perspective. Well,
1: acceptable. Arkansas, Arkansas fans are definitely from good at that.
0: Texas too. They hate to, like people don't understand that like that game goes back to the seventies and that it was kind of a crappy bowl to watch, but like that just changed. That changed all the intangible stuff in that state,
1: and I certainly didn't help from an Arkansas standpoint. I mean, our, our freaking numbers, mine especially, adored Arkansas last year, and I tried to in the Arkansas preview. I tried to kind of go into why a little bit in terms of you know they just they, when they looked good, they looked absolutely spectacular, and yes. most of the time when they looked when they lost, they still looked pretty decent, and so on average, they didn't lay as many eggs as, as most teams, and they, when they looked good, they were ninety percentile good. So
0: I saw them in person once and. On a, on a pure eye test level and from, like, opposing coaches and, and opposing players. I saw them in Little Rock where they came out, and for one drive, Georgia could not answer what had to have been maybe three and a half play calls just <laughs> run in different variations out of different formations. And really, I'm not talking about, like, a ton of shift in motion stuff. It was, the, it, it was like, the first time and – I've got a couple Arkansas – fans that are good friends they said like this is what we thought he wanted to do and he actually did it and then of course they just didn't have the depth to contend with georgia quarterback play was incredibly lopsided but so coming out of your usc thing i do this thing uh at sb nation with bill where uh one i refer to him as a cylon because he is um if you don't know if you don't get that cultural reference hit up a google and spend about 60 hours on netflix uh and then the other thing is with the cylon I will base my travel, I, I do. I guess I do the most of the traveling for SB Nation in college football, I will base my travel on on Bill's, I guess, suggestion, or I'll kind of grill you before I go to a game, and usually it pays out well. So you mentioned the USC-BC uh, game, and it was something we, had, I think, kind of all talked about at work last year going into the season. Um, a couple years ago, I asked you the same thing about going to ULM when Baylor came to town. Again, kind of a weird weeknight game not cross country by any stretch but a uh, strange environment and they were coming off the Arkansas set. And then last year do you remember what game I bothered you about for like 3 weeks before I booked my plane ticket?
1: I don't remember who Houston was playing. It wasn't Houston. Oh well hell.
0: It was a it was a power, uh, one power 5 school going to another. I'll put you on the spot here. Oh, hell. It was a weeknight game and I bothered you for I bothered you for like the month of August like should I go to this game? Is it going to be worth it for me to go to this game? Prove to me it's worth it to go to this game. Man, and you were almost right about the upset.
1: See, I—I I, I, this Blanky. is proof that I don't pound my chest very much because I don't remember being almost right about anything.
0: I'm a little disappointed, robot. Uh, it was Auburn in KSA. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so just did the whole USC thing just charge mine? Do I or do I not? Because our friends at SB Nation that actually approved my travel think <laughs> this is a silly task. Is there not some sort of potential for like an ugly slow motion car wreck to happen on a Friday night when Boise goes to Virginia?
1: It's a long way to travel. And it's, it's a
0: really long way to travel, and it's a Friday Boise's night. Like, even on the West Coast, Boise's not close to anything.
1: No, and it's it's a Friday night. Um, I'm trying to remember who will Virginia have lost to by that point. <laughs> um, let me pull up their schedule because I mean the thing about Virginia is they were close to being pretty good last year. They right. really, they really, really were, and, uh,
0: you have, you know, and I also think you have a coach that has, um, he's sort of the hot seat coach right now. Oh I'd yeah. say at the in the power five level. I mean, there are guys I think might, are going to get fired this year, like Daryl Hazel or, um, gosh, he's the first one that springs to mind. I mean, there's a couple others. I think I have some dark horse uh, hot seat guys, but like
1: Golden, everyone's
0: like, oh, who's getting fired this year? Al Golden is is one. I think one A is Mike London.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and I, I, you know, at some point, you know, saying, well, they they were more competitive last year only gets you so far. But they really were. UCLA ended up good. They, you know, stayed within eight points of UCLA. They beat Louisville. Uh, They went to BYU and played well uh, and only lost by eight. And that was before, I'm pretty sure that was before Taysom Hill got hurt. So, you know, they, they didn't almost beat Florida state like every other team on the Florida state schedule, but they still only lost by a couple touchdowns in Tallahassee. Uh, They crushed Miami and granted Miami had completely packed it in because they lost to Florida state, but they beat Pitt. Pitt wasn't terrible. So I, you know, they were close last year. I think in our, in fact, in our, I'm going to pull up the F plus rankings because nothing makes for better uh, (laughs) podcasting or radio than dogs barking and me looking up rankings online. Um,
0: Yeah. So as you do that, I'll say. um, So here's the schedule. We should take. We'll go ahead and take a listener vote if you think I should go to this. uh, What could be an atrocious blowout or a really bizarre, sad type of upset. Um, So you, Virginia opens at UCLA. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Home for Notre Dame. Home for Notre Dame. That's right. Right. Then the week before they get William and Mary. So that's your get well game, and then your your Friday night against Boise.
1: That is, first of all, a stupid get well game. If you're going to get well, play somebody who might not beat you. Uh, William & Mary is typically not terrible, um, but I realize you know, they're pretty close state, so That probably had something to do with it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going sure. to say that that is not as big uh, a potential experience as, boy- as Kansas State Auburn was or nearly was. But there is absolutely upset. Definitely not the,
0: the, the quality of
1: team. Right. But there is absolutely upset potential there because Virginia wasn't terrible last year. They're 39th. they thirty 39th in our F-plus rankings. 40th was West Virginia. 42nd was A&M. 38th was South Carolina. So they were right on that borderline, except they lost like freaking – um, yeah, they lost by eight. They lost by eight, seven, one, four. Like they were really close to being a lot better last year.
0: All right. There it is. So you're giving me like a – I feel like that's like a 60% green light.
1: I yeah, yeah, it. yeah. No, whatever – you know, Kansas State-Auburn was 100% if I remember right. But yeah. – yeah, this really, is really if
0: you go hey, if you go back to one bad play call at the goal line, that changes the complexion of the entire season. Oh yeah. More so than anybody realizes. That changes the complexion of the season not just because it knocks Auburn out and therefore kind of screws up three or four different scenarios off the top of my head in the SEC West. You've got a K-State team that beats Auburn and that Auburn team likely goes on to have probably the same result. That K-State team goes on to play Baylor. They go on to play TCU. It suddenly gives more merit to the Big 12. I mean, that changes a lot of stuff just because they had one or two bad calls, but one in particular, I was thinking of the pop pass that got intercepted.
1: Yeah, but I mean, and and after that, they go to Oklahoma. They they get amazingly lucky, but they still win at Oklahoma. They shut Texas out. Yeah, until they got thumped by TCU in in November, K-State was looking... Well, I mean, hell, they were in the top 10, a couple, at least once, uh, you know, even though I don't think the stats ever quite saw that because as any good K-State fan will tell you, my stats are programmed to hate Kansas State, um, but, you know, they were, they were a solid team, and if, if they beat Auburn, instead of being ninth when they played TCU, they're probably about fourth, they're, they're undefeated, they're third or fourth, so yeah, that, that changes a lot.
0: By the way, if you if you're interested in this kind of alchemy, um, Holly Anderson today over at Greenland. I, I the only reason I'm plugging this well, one I'm plugging this because Holly's a great writer, oh, but yeah. also um, and a friend. But uh, she has basically a like a laundry list of what if scenarios that all involve Gus Malzon <laughs> and sort of his impact in not necessarily on the field, but like. The moves he made and when he made them inside of the Southeastern Conference affecting the entire nation of college football for about a five-year run. It is bizarre. It is scary. It ends up with Houston not still having a job. (laughs) Um, It's it's definitely worth a read. Um, Okay, so last thing I want to get to. uh, The powerhouse that everyone's interested in this year, uh, the Texas Tech Red Raiders. Of course. Of course. Um, They lose a defensive coordinator to um, probably one of the strangest situations I've seen outside of – I mean, I'm not trying to make a like a poorly crafted joke here, but like Jerry Sandusky, honestly, <laughs> where you have a guy who's got some serious mental issues, and you know, from what we know now, what it what gone on, what, what gone on, what had what transpired with the Texas Tech coaching staff definitely had an effect on their season. I'm not saying they don't regress in year two under Cliff Kingsbury, but. I think the signs of having a head coach who's, I think, three months older than I am (laughs) um, starts to show pretty quickly. So the reason why I bring up Texas Tech is um, our mutual friend, uh, David Gibbs, who hates you uh, passionately. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Uh, So Bill and I sort of collaborated on a story last year where I like to take some of his theories at Football Study Hall and and test them against coaches because some coaches love analytics. They do. I, I know I just said that sarcastically, but I meant it genuinely. And then some coaches... Love to try and dispel them, and so Gibbs is a guy who truly believes that he can coach turnovers, and this is something that Bill's analytics would, I guess, I mean, you know, take it over here. It's not that you don't believe that necessarily; it's that the numbers show that it's
1: you can uh, create turnover. You can create turnover opportunities if you're sacking the quarterback. You're probably forcing more fumbles. If you're obviously, if you're trying to play tighter defense, then you have a chance to get your hand on more passes. Uh, you know, and if you're doing those things, then you will ca- force more turnovers. But still, my point has always been, and I, I kind of have the numbers to back this up you know, once you have forced the turnover or forced the fumble, it gets random. Once you've gotten your hand on a pass, sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. It gets kind of random there, too. Even though, you know, like safety's coming downhill at the ball will intercept more than corners, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, there is a, a massive element of randomness. And the reason David Gibbs hates me, so to speak, well, not so to speak, um, is that in 2013, Houston was absurdly lucky. They created more t- turnover opportunities, but they still ended up with far more actual takeaways than they should have gotten. And meanwhile, nobody in the world could hold on to an interception that John O'Corn was really trying to throw. And last year, suddenly those teams held on to those interceptions. And last time, you know, suddenly Houston wasn't recovering 70% of all fumbles and their record took a dip. I love that kind of defense. And you can absolutely force those opportunities, but they still got massively lucky in 2013. So
0: the theory to take this, and we're going to apply it now in the Power Five this year, although Houston's a great program – the theory that, that Gibbs' defense is centered around is actually something that Bill and I agree strongly on, and that's the death of the box score. And that's something that we'll get into, I'm sure, time and again on the show. Um, Gibbs is a guy who will look at total total yardage and throw it out immediately, whereas there are still coordinators I talk to you to this day that will tell you it was a great game. We held him to X. Yeah. Um, so. He doesn't even really look at yards per play. He likes to break it down on a pass run basis. He's a guy who agrees about sack yardage, but the biggest thing that they that he's looking at are total possessions, turnovers, and basically how many how many opportunities can he create to just and This is boiling it down to its essentials. I'll have to go back and check my notes. To, I don't want to like uh, not I don't want to misquote the man, but. There's a perception in Texas football right now of the air raid means you're going to score almost every play, right? Or you're at least going to cross the 50. You're going to score a lot. if you give your team three more chances than the other team, logic says that you're going to win. And so Gibbs has sort of just become obsessed with that concept and will therefore sell out and, and does consistently to create a turnover opportunity, as you say. So. What does that entail? That means everything from how he creates his defensive looks up front. He basically has a hand in the dirt guy, the fourth, you know, your traditional, like, like, I guess, weak side defensive end is going to be a a 3 4 linebacker that's going to move around and manipulate that look every single play. Um, What they're doing is actually, and what they're going to do at Texas Tech this year. And and so, Texas Tech is going to be one of these schools I think for the purposes of this show, we're going to watch because I want to see how this theory goes. They're going to not necessarily become some sort of world-beating statistical anomaly and shut down the air raids in in the state of Texas and beat Baylor or whatever. But if they're able to go plus one, plus two more on turnovers, what's that worth to Texas Tech? My question to you is: Do you think it turns a four and eight last year into a six and six, and do you think it turns maybe a six and six six and six this year into like a seven and five or eight and four?
1: Yeah, I mean their offense is going to be awesome. Last year they you know had two young quarterbacks, one got hurt. They threw in a true freshman Mahomes, and he did awesome. Um, and I think that um, because of how you know even with all the turnover and all the struggles, they still had in terms of my uh, S plus number um a top 25 offense it should be top 20 this year and so i mean he's it's it's absolutely right to think about you know we're going to score a lot if we can break serve a couple times we will absolutely win that that's perfectly fine the, the problem that he he's going to inherit and maybe he can do something about this their run defense was abysmal last year and most of your the turnover opportunities you're going to force so to speak are going to come against the pass so unless they can Sure, up they run. out, they've got all the experience in the world in the front seven, uh, or in the front on the line anyway. Um, unless they can stop the run even slightly well, then it doesn't matter. But if they can, if they can get guys into the passing, now they got, you know, Pete Robertson, uh, they got that Ohio State transfer, Mike Mitchell, they've got guys who can attack the pass. They've got an experienced secondary. Um, all of that works if they can stop the run well enough to make teams pass. They couldn't do that last year.
0: Um, so looking back at the story i wrote uh so they called it the third ward defense which is just obviously an homage to, to houston but um what they want to do is basically create a situation where they are almost rock paper scissoring their looks against a quarterback if they assume a quarterback's going to throw the ball you know three or four times in a row they may run the same play three or four times from three or four different looks gives this assumption is the quarterback will make a mistake, a pretty big one, one out of every three or four times. Yeah. Now, again, there's no there's no way to measure that, that that mistake is going to be. Does he throw it to the wrong guy and who's you know a hitch instead of a post and it lands incomplete, or is it a pick six? Well, what Houston lucked out on was that again, I guess, and this speaks more to what your theory is. They ended up with a lot more interceptions than they probably should have at once. Except the numbers were consistent in fourteen. Right? The streak continued all the way until, what, the end of the season, I think?
1: In terms of forcing turnovers?
0: In terms of they had a games with consistent uh, turnovers was 30-something, I think. I mean, they in 2013, they were plus 25. So that's pretty insane. That did not happen last year. But, right, no. Yeah, so the, I mean, the point of all this is, let's say this works, and let's say that you start to see defenses adopt the same mentality as like up-tempo spreads which is that you know, we're, sh- we're going to run the same play, so to speak, or the same defensive call through a lot of different looks in just an effort to confuse you. If that works, well, then logic says that, hey, you know this whole advantage that these hurry-up teams have had on defenses is going to start to erode, and then maybe we see a new style of defense emerge. I'm not saying Gibbs is some sort of revolutionary. It's just a new, refreshing way of thinking. And sort of the reason I brought it to Bill and the reason I bring it to you guys is you don't hear that from defensive coordinators that often. Yeah, especially especially in conferences outside of the Big
1: Twelve. Yeah, and and um, one example of a guy outside the Big Twelve is Todd Graham. Um, You you mentioned the pieces you've got going up recently or soon. I next week we should have a big uh, blueprint for a game plan style piece where I talk to a bunch of coaches about their work week, basically in the fall, one of them was Todd Graham and he talked about, you know, it it was basically, it's an excuse to talk to coaches about their philosophy, which I love doing. And Graham's is basically, you know, we're going to move real fast and attack you on offense on defense. We're going to move really fast and attack you on special teams. We're going to move really fast and attack you. They, you know, his philosophy, the way he views it is it goes on no matter which of their units is on the field. That's what they're trying to do. And, and yeah, it's basically because they want you to read one thing. Then when the play, the ball is snapped, you see something completely different and uh you're thinking and they're attacking and they win that's that's his uh philosophy it forces a lot of turnovers it gets a lot of big plays and um and it's really it's really it's hard to translate that uh, it's uh you know in terms of you know actual on the field performance sometimes but i love that philosophy and i i'm all for it catching on elsewhere
0: one thing i'd add too before we move on from texas tech is uh, one of the quotes I remember from Gibbs that I actually would be interested to test if it's possible is that he has a theory now that you go back to the pro set days and like when I say pro set or pro style, I'm talking more about two back from like the 1980s. I think that's, is, I think that's a fair definition. Um, that was, you know, pretty much it. That was like your standard issue offense in right. football, college or pro, for like the better part of 20 years before things started to change, thank God. Um, you would have – the quarterback in the center touch the ball in every play, and then you would have upwards of maybe three or four tops, individuals on your entire team that would touch a football. Yeah. And so Gibbs' theory is, you know, you can only work hands so often. You can only work pass catching so often. And so the more that the ball is actually spread around in a spread, the more people that touch it, six receivers, seven receivers deep are catching passes. I mean, you've seen – I've got an old Mike Leach, uh, I think – play box from maybe 10 years ago where I want like it was like 13 14 people catching a pass in the game <laughs> something insane odds are their hands are going to be bad and so that's why he likes to jam guys that's why he likes to, to have a lot of contact a lot of rubbing is that maybe they could be there at the point of the actual reception and pull it away from guys or create fumbles you know strip drills things like that on receivers I don't know how you would even begin to sort of prove or disprove that, but. It's something again that was refreshing talking to Gibbs that I just hadn't heard before.
1: Yeah, so, no, that's that makes perfect sense, and it's something I hadn't really heard.
0: Yeah, I mean, we for one of the stigmas like growing up, and I say this as a guy in his early 30s, is like you would hear like the hands on a running back. You know how often they fumbled or didn't fumble, and you know did did a running back have solid hands because they were going to touch the ball? I mean, the running backs we watched when we were kids they, they carried the ball minimum 25 times a game, so. And and we're talking about what fifty plays, sixty plays, you know, sixty five. Yeah, so sixty five. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that mattered. I just from a personal standpoint, I can I can remember every time Jamal Anderson fumbled <laughs> as a Falcons fan, and it being a travesty. And you just don't have that situation anymore. Also, a fumble doesn't get you benched in the same way. So
1: um, yeah.
0: all right, Bill. I feel like we're we're ending the near the uh, <laughs> the uh, conclusion of what was probably a rambling and tinny sounding sound check um is there anything that we want to add other than we're sorry and and keep keep trying with us
1: yeah i think um the point is every single week or every single time we do this we're going to aim for 30 minutes and hit 45 um as we almost almost exactly have this time um but you know it's fun what else are you going to do while you're listening in the car or at work or something
0: here's the things that we promise to do Um, We're not going to be experts on scores and predictions. Um, If you need that, you can go to any bevy of other uh, situations because I think both of us would agree that it's an inexact science that we're bad at, and God knows I don't want anyone keeping a tally on my predictions as the season goes because they're not going to look good, and I'm actually paid to cover college football for a living. So uh, I think the second thing is we will respond to anything you guys throw at us, most anything. So um, we're all about dispelling myths and trying to add some – numerology or intelligence expertise insight whatever we got so
1: we we will uh respond to any future uh questions even though we managed to not respond to a single one of the questions we got off twitter this time
0: well the answer to why we hate your team is because um they suck and if,
1: and if, if donald Trump, trump the first question we got yeah pretty much and, and if donald trump were a college football team which one would he be michigan i mean close us
0: out on that take us home on that
1: yeah i mean i don't even know if i need an explanation for that that's just it's it's got to be michigan right
0: I mean, I, I don't want to create dead silence here as I sit here and think on this, but um,
1: okay, I'll go with
0: it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, before I even started thinking of jokes, I was actually trying to seriously apply the qualities of Donald Trump to a college football team. I'll take it.
1: Okay, well, um, and, right, and, and next week we'll try to get to the, who do you think Kansas' starting quarterback will be? <laughs> wow. Well, if
0: that doesn't tease us all the way to the top of the podcast charts, I don't know what will. Okay, so for Bill Connolly, my name's Stephen Godfrey. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter. You can check us out over at SBNation.com. And uh, we'll see you next week.
1: Yep.